Well, 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 good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. My name is Steve Brooks. This is uh, Kurt Borden. Uh, we're going to be leading you in Bible study tonight. We are in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to do all that we can to uh, get through Ezekiel chapter 22 tonight. So we are certainly looking forward to it. It's a kind of a way to get our uh, uh, heart a little bit open to the Lord tonight. I want to ask you two questions. Uh, number one, I want you to think of a one or two people in your life that have brought out the best in you. As you kind of allow that person to uh, come to your mind, um, what kind of heart or what kind of life did that person have to live in order to bring out the best in you, right? So you got that person in mind. Now I want you to think about another person who uh, brought out the best in you for them, See the difference? Yeah. And basically, uh, how that act of, I would call it abuse, right? To use somebody for your own ends is about the least biblical thing that we can do. And how did that make you feel, right? We're going to run into some of these questions tonight in Ezekiel 22, and um, it doesn't do us much good if we leave all of what we are reading uh, 3,000 years ago, uh, 2,500 years ago. It doesn't do us any good if we leave it there. We've got to bring it here to bear down our soul now. So keep those questions in mind as we uh, cover Ezekiel 22 tonight. Was well, a way to get us into our time tonight. We're going to read today's. Uh, if you read a psalm a day, and then you start over, and then you start over again. Today is Psalm 129 day, and uh, it fits just a little bit with what we're going to be going through. Let's pray. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, "They have greatly oppressed me from my youth." But they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like the grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hand with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to take a look at chapter 22. I want to commend you. We're almost there. We're almost to the first plateau of the first third of the book. I was thought you were going to say we were almost finished. I was like, lies. No. It's all lies. No. <laughs> I told you it was the climbing uh, Mount Everest. It, it's, it's, a, it's a monumental effort. This is why most people never get it done in the course of their life. Yeah, I heard one of our, one of our number tonight tell me they've just missed one time, Kurt. 
be very proud of it. Which is probably better than me. So better than me. Yeah. Yeah. So you've you've done done well. We'll we'll shift in about three chapters to God discussing the nations around Israel, which is a relief, right? When God's picking on you, it's intense, it's hard. When he's picking on somebody else, that's more fun, right? (laughs) Because somebody else is getting in trouble. So we're we're almost to the first plateau and we'll shift shift topics. But before we uh, dive into chapter 22 too deep, I want to share two archaeological uh, reports that have just come out this last week. Uh, I try the best I can, if, if there's something bearing on what we're discussing, to bring them forward to you. The pace of archaeological discovery anymore is so fast and furious, it's hard to keep up. And I'm getting old, and I don't know as many people, so I'm missing a lot of things. But I did want to share these two things with you. Uh, one I think is funny, and the other is probably important. So first, the important one. There uh, has been an examination of the throne room in Nineveh of the Assyrians. So remember, the Assyrians are the original world empire builders. They were from northern Iraq. They're the ones that really invented and kind of perfected genocide. They destroyed northern Israel, and they so traumatized the rest of the world that they taught others how to build these world empires. So we're dealing with Babylon tonight, which is a successor empire to the Assyrians. So the Assyrian was like the original abuser, and then they taught the Babylonians through a lot of pain how to do it. And so one of the groups of people that destroyed the capital of Assyria were these Babylonians. And so they've gone in and they've re-excavated, looked at some wall panels that the Assyrians had, specifically how they were damaged. I want to show you a picture. I think it's just labeled Assyria. So pretty standard fare. Uh, I always call them the ZZ Top people because this period they all have these long uh, ZZ Top beards. They're not quite homeless beards because they're nice and kept and square, but they're, they're nice long beards. So here you have the last king of Assyria. Standing behind him is his guardian angel. Uh, technically they call it his genie, but it is a divine figure that is empowering him to protect him. So I apologize, I couldn't find the best picture. It was published in a paper, and of course, those are always really small, so I had to steal this image. But if you look carefully at his bow, you'll see in four different areas, they very intentionally cut his bow. So it wasn't a matter of killing the king, destroying their army. They, in a magical sense, in a political sense, propaganda sense, wanted to completely rob the image forever. And remember the group, one of the groups important for us that's doing this are the Arameans. They are who the Babylonians really are. The Arameans were a people not so dissimilar from Israel. In fact, in the time of David, we have mention of them. They were, most of their tribe was also slaughtered by the Assyrians. And so they hated, hated them. A small group of them survived in southern Iraq. And these become the Neo-Babylonians or the Chaldeans, which are actually known as Arameans. I know this is a lot of, a lot of weird names and language. But there are two Babylonians, Arameans, that we pay attention to. Nabopolazar 
the father and Nebuchadnezzar, the son. And it was the son who is now king in the time of Ezekiel that was responsible for the destruction of the throne room in Assyria. So I won't spend too much time, but he gouged out all of the eyes and he gouged out all of the ears. He cut the Achilles heel on the statue. He, uh, you'll, he also cuts the wrist off of the angel. He cuts the access to the pot that's holding uh, everything uh, in terms of power. And then one last thing that the researchers, and this is what grabbed my attention. Can you see sort of above the writing, they put in another head? So this is part of the, the defamation that they did. That is Nebuchadnezzar. So the last thing the Assyrian king, the statue, is seeing is whose face? Nebuchadnezzar. Does that sound like a biblical passage that we've read? What did Nebuchadnezzar do to the last king of Judah? Killed his sons in front of his eyes with Nebuchadnezzar standing there and then blinded uh, the king. So the last thing you ever saw. So it just struck my attention. Again, this author is not particularly interested in biblical history, but they're confirming it in, in a way that uh, that personality of Nebuchadnezzar, I want my enemy to see me as the last thing. So that was, that was interesting. That's the important part. And then the second, which is a great photo, the oldest and nicest private toilet ever discovered in first century Jerusalem. Roman toilets were always communal affairs. No stalls, no separation. Everybody share and share alike. So how are you? Oh, I'm good. Yeah, good to see you. So you had to be somebody really, really important to have your own private bathroom. We don't know who this person was, but it's quite likely that they knew Jesus. Uh, They're right in the middle of the first century. And so here they have their own private loo. Uh, It's a septic tank going down quite deep. So yeah. The archaeology just keeps flowing in, babies. You never know what you're going to dig up. It's great stuff. So, anyway. <clears throat> yep. Yep. It, it, yep. <laughs> anyway, moving on to chapter 22. We are in a hard place again, and it's, it's dangerous to take all of this out of context tonight, so we'll try to do it, get it all tonight if I'll get in gear and leave it in context, but God is looking at his chosen nation, his people, as a body, as a single organism. A lot of times we just want to be individuals to God, and we are, but we're also something corporate. Even as Christians, we know he sees us as the body of Christ. So we're cells, we're heads, we're hands that make up something larger. And he's looking at the nation, and he's found incredible fault. They haven't become priests to the nations. They've become really vampires. Uh, Like Steve was saying, the worst is a person that takes life from another to live. God intended us to share life, to bring life out of other people. That's what he hoped, and that's not come to pass. So he tells us verse 1. Now this message came to me from the Lord, 
Son of Man, and again, I'm super repetitive with that, but so important if you're going to get Ezekiel. We are in the labor pains of birthing the Son of Man. We are in actually the Bible's description of what it took to get Jesus into the world. And so we're moving from Son of Man being what we see here tonight, that a son of Adam is a creature that's driven towards violence, driven towards gaining life at the expense of another, to the Son of Man that can be, in a sense, the Son of God that gives life to the whole world. So we're, we're going from point A to point B, but we're somewhere in the middle. And you get a big golden star if you can tell me what Genesis 3 says about that. Who is the one who is going to be the Son of Man? All the way back in Genesis 3. What are they going to do? It's crushing Kurt. <laughs> oh, that was, that was a bad pun. <laughs> the snake crusher. Remember, there's this, there's this seed of the woman that is going to get struck by the snake, but at the same time, he's going to crush its head, right? And so that, that is this, this birth pain that Pastor Kurt is talking about that's on the way, and, and it, we're, we're going to get to the end of this chapter, and it's going to be like, okay, is it here? We'll see. Yeah. Tonight, you're going to see the worst of humanity when the, the son of Eve can be the best of us to, to yeah. really be the crusher of evil. Yep. But God asks, are you ready to judge Jerusalem? Are you ready to judge this city of murderers? To denounce her terrible deeds in public and give her this message from the sovereign Lord. The city of murderers, doomed and damned, city of idols, filthy and foul. You are guilty of both murder and destruction, or murder and idolatry. Your day of destruction has come. Okay. Again, if you're just getting into the study, this is hard. Um, this is a hard conversation God's having with a child he loves very much. But what has been wrong with his people? What's gone wrong? What's he so upset about? Yeah. Child sacrifice, the worshiping the idols, just because we have a stone image doesn't mean he's upset. It's what we do in order to please these stone statues that upsets him so so desperately, uh, it's the abuse of women, and then it leads to the death of children. So these are uh, Canaanite gods that have forever tempted Israel, and they've just given themselves over to them. Um, but the city itself, and really by extension the nation, has, has just devolved into looking like their neighbors. They were designed to be the yeast that transformed the Gentiles. I mean, we have to be clear about where we are in this story. The Gentiles in the world at this time, everybody except for the Jews, we're bad. We're really, really bad. Uh, there, there's no wiggle about it. Now, we get better in the New Testament when some of the light shines on us, but we're definitely the bad guys. Uh, the bad, we, we do this kind of stuff. You know, when they look at our ancestors in England and Ireland and Scotland, who were the bog people? Do you remember that? The bog men? 
the peat moss diggers over the years, really started in the 19th century, would be out in the swamps digging up peat moss, which they used to heat their homes and other uh, uses of coal. And they keep finding these bodies that were so amazingly preserved in the the peat moss because of uh, the, the lack of oxygen in the water. Anyway, uh, these were human sacrifices that our ancestors, the Celts and the Europeans were doing. So human sacrifice was not something that the Canaanites invented. We humans have a propensity to this. So as much as we want to think, oh, our civilized people would never do it. Yes, we were. Um, the Aztecs were doing it. I mean, this is, this is the depravity of humanity without God. God's upset here because Israel, the nation he was trying to change from this, has just become like the rest of the world. So when God comes to judge a body, he is a bit like a doctor. He will look at the organs, he will look at the cells and see, all right, how much of this can be salvaged? How much of this is still good? And certainly he knows in a way far beyond us all the choices and possibility a person will make. He knows where they're going to end up. And he's crazy merciful at times. Even though certain people he knows will damn themselves, he still lets them live in order to give them chances. Judas is the, the classic example of this. Do you remember the occasion which he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens right before that? Who does he discuss it with? You remember? He has sent angels on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah, and we have this sort of teaching lesson where God stops and has dinner with Abraham. Now we know God is going to do what he's going to do, but he's sort of a parent having a, a stage conversation, if you will, with Abraham about what he does before he actually lowers the boom on somebody. He, he, like Steve always tells us, God is slow to anger but he does get angry. And there are occasions in which he has to perform surgery on the body that is so dead and so corrupted that he has to remove sometimes the entire body, other times just sections of it. So let's look back at it. This is from Genesis uh, chapter 18, yep, I think. That's right. So I think we have it on the screen. So God was accompanied by two other angels. Um, so they're making this nice trinity. The other men turned, turned and head towards Sodom. So these will be the two angels that eventually destroy it. But the Lord, so again, we're clear, it's Yahweh, remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, uh, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Now Abraham's worried because who's in Sodom? Lot, his nephew. And there's kind of a, a sin that Abraham's been struggling with. Abraham got really wealthy when he sold his wife to the Egyptians. And he had so many cattle, uh, so many livestock, that when he came back, he tried to share some with his nephew, Lot, but there was too much. They're eating too much. They can't support him in, in the area. So they have to separate. They have to move the flocks apart because they've got too much stuff. And the area that his nephew ended up in is the raunchy town, Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham's thinking, oh, no, I sent Lot and the girls over there. 
what am I going to do? So he's trying to negotiate with God, right? So are you going to kill everybody? Uh, suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it uh, for their sakes? So, you know, let's never forget Abraham is from the Middle East. He can haggle. He's a Jew. He can negotiate. Okay, this is part of their cultural heritage. Uh, Surely you won't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you won't do that. And so you really can hear God teaching Abraham through this. God knows the answer, but he wants Abraham to think his way through it. I love the way the Bible does this. Uh, This type of thinking of having your student answer his own question is really a scriptural way. And we'll see it develop. Remember we saw it, the riddle we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We'll see it develop with rabbis. Jesus is a big fan of this as well. He'll tell you a story and then you come up with the answer. But it's, it's starting here between Abraham and God. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Now, that gives us, I think, true insight that if God looks at a city, and we can assume an ancient city of Sodom's size is probably 4,000, probably less than that, but no more than maybe 5,000, between, I would say, three and 5,000. Uh, so 50 is, is not a large percentage of that body, right? It's, it's a small number. But Abraham continues to work the deal. Uh, Since I have begun, uh, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Okay, pour it on. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the city uh, for the lack of five? So haggling here. How low does Abraham go? Ten. (laughs) Yeah. So do the math with me. How many righteous people were actually in Sodom? Who were they? Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. Now, when all that's over, what does Lot's wife do? So was she righteous? No. What do the two daughters do the next season after this? They get daddy drunk, and they sleep with him to have sons, which produce the Ammonites and Moabites. Were the girls good? Nope. And we have a real sense that Lot wasn't good. So God knew that whole area was rotten to the core. There was no ten. There was no one. He was willing to save it, try, if there was anything left, if there was any possible choice. In fact, he's probably being excessively merciful by letting four of them out because of the damage that they produce. The Moabites, which remember is this Hebrew joke, Moab means from my father. So their ancestry is not from their husband, but it's from their father. And they become these wicked hillbillies that are inbred because of Lot's daughters. So they cause a lot of, lot of pain and hardship. What is that, Rafer? Narrow in the eyes? Narrow in the eyes. It's not a gene pool, it's a bush leading to one side. So anyway, just want to keep that before us. God does not come in judgment because he's quick to anger or lost his temper easily. 
This has been centuries in the building. And when he looks at a city and says, yep, we're done, he's not kidding. He is the one that can look in every heart and say, this has gone as far as it can go. So back to Jerusalem. If we had but one righteous person, God would save the city. Let's see if we can find the one righteous person. God tells them, I will make you an object of mockery throughout the world. O infamous city filled with confusion, you will be mocked by people both far and near. Do we still talk about war and killing in the Middle East? I mean, really, do you ever think of any other city in the Middle East quite like Jerusalem? God's, he's not kidding. Um, It's not always good, but we never forget what has to happen. So as my mother said to me one day in the uh, Walmart uh, parking lot, I'm going to give you such a spank in this store, we'll never forget. (laughs) This is is that day for for Jerusalem. Um, Every leader in Israel who lives within your walls is bent on murder. Fathers and mothers are contemptuously ignored. Resident foreigners are forced to pay protection. Orphans and widows are wronged and oppressed. Inside your walls, you despise my holy things, and you violate my Sabbath days of rest. So we'll just stop there. That's two verses. As we go through this, ask yourself, is Jerusalem guilty of anything that the United States is not? Do we have leaders in our country bent on murder? Our fathers and mothers and the advice they give their kids contemptuously ignored? Do we take advantage of foreigners that come into our nation, either as cheap labor or cheap votes? It gets much harder when we understand why God wants the story continued. Do we despise holy things of God? What's even left that's holy in our country? I mean, honestly, if one of the kids asked me, hey, take me to show me something holy, where would we go? And I don't ask that rhetorically. I really don't know. I mean, what's holy in our country? I'd like to think like the Vietnam Memorial or something like that, the Lincoln Memorial. But we deface those regularly. Do we keep the Sabbath holy? No. That's Jewish stuff. Who cares? God cared. And it's not that we can't buy liquor on Saturday or Sunday that he cares about. What are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Just to rest, in a sense, with God. We rest, we get refocused, recommitted to him. We look back at what we've done, and we make sense of it because we're with God for one day out of the week. How much different are we as people when we're not 
manic, crazy, frenetic, just going and doing, and the next news cycle, and this next, and next, and next. We go to psychologists, we take medications, we go on trips to calm ourselves down. When God was saying, yeah, in the beginning, I actually designed you to work really hard for six days and then stop and look back at what you and hopefully I have done together. But you're too smart. We were too smart 2,500 years ago. Well, God, this is a different age. We, we are living in the 24th century. Right, right. And this is what you end up doing. Uh, it's a consistent ignoring every command he has given us since the beginning. The Sabbath is the first command. He gave other commands. We, we ignore them all. You are filled with idol worshipers and people who take part in lewd activity. So Steve asked me to look this word up for you. <laughs> you really want to know what it is? It's Hollywood. It's... <clears throat> you know, I love archaeology. I wonder what archaeologists will say of America when they dig us up. What is our lasting legacy? What have we created around the world? I would hope they would say that when America was at its height and its power, we created a peaceful kind of empire. We raised literacy rates around the world. Life expectancy has increased since the end of World War II. We have spread medicines and vaccines. We don't enslave countries like other empires have done. We lifted them up. We blessed our enemies, Germany and Japan, vicious enemies. And what have we done for them? That's the best of us. And I think that's the Christian nation. But we also have to stare into some really dark places. We created the internet. And what is the internet's primary function in our world today? I mean, there's not even doubt of the vast majority of what it's used for today. Do you know what it is? It's not Facebook. It's not catching up with grandma's pictures. It's not information. It's pornography. We have created the greatest engine of lewd behavior in the history of the planet. I hope that's not in a museum someday. <laughs> we walk through the American pornography. Oh, God. Uh, we don't mean to. But God's asking again, where's my 50 Where's my 45? Where's my one? That will remember you and I can build an incredible city, an eternal city, a city that's a light on a hill. Left to your own devices where you take the life from women and you make it some cheap thing for other people, that's not, that's not life. So yes, the Canaanites were horrible with their ritual prostitution, with their child sacrifice, but we have made it a part of the information age. So we go on. Um, God's got a list. Men sleep with their father's wives and have intercourse with women who are menstruating. Now we think, ooh, that's gross. I don't want to talk about that. But is there any sexual activity that is forbidden to America today? I mean, think about just in our lifetime. There's nothing. And we feel like we have a right to it, don't we? 
whatever I want, whatever I can imagine, you have to back it. You have to accept it. God's like, I really didn't make you for this. I made sex to be a beautiful thing between a husband and a wife that gives life, literally brings forth life, and emotionally in terms of love, brings something beautiful between you. But you make it so it doesn't give life. It robs people. People with mental illnesses are encouraged in their sexual deviancy, and it's our culture. Uh, we don't want to hear it, but for God, sex during menstruation is, is a horrible thing. We think, well, what is that? What is that? That's our God saying, I didn't design you to do this. Um, life, blood, and that's what they're about, belongs to God. And so this is part of those overall instructions the Jews got, that before we eat meat, we give the blood back to God because blood is where the soul is contained. And we teach ourselves, every time we eat, we teach our kids, life does not belong to us. Life is sacred. God may give us life um, to eat, but it's special. Life is holy. He's doing this even in the most intimate moments between a man and a wife. When a woman is going through this, it's a reminder that that blood is what brings forth a child. And it's not to be profaned. But we don't even care. This seems like it's, it's rare, it's foreign, it's, it's strange. Life is a precious, precious thing. But God continues, oh, this is hard. Um, within your walls, men live to commit adultery with their neighbor's wives, who defile daughters-in-laws, or who rape their own sisters. There are hired murderers, lone racketeers, extortioners everywhere. They, well, let me stop there. So it's not just sort of the social things that he's upset about. Maybe we consider religious or social things. But he's worried about the way that you do business. A lot of the commands, the law, was how you treat people. And a lot of times we always say, well, that's old ritual law. You know, who cares about pork or eating shrimp or uh, carrying, wearing two different types of clothing? Uh, yeah, that's really not all the law is. The law is about how you charge interest on a loan, how you are supposed to help in terms of gleaming uh, the poor people. It's about uh, what happens when there's an accident and someone's property is damaged. I mean, God had very specific, detailed instructions for the way they were to live their lives. And it was, as Jesus summed up so beautifully, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the law. So we can't hold to the teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, and totally dismiss the law. They are cheating each other. Now, let's remember, this is wartime. They're desperate. The price of food is astronomical. They are stuck between two empires. Uh, they are either under siege or shortly going to be under siege. And when the Babylonians come in, our favorite Nebuchadnezzar likes to uh, do horrible things to you, kill you uh, or kill your children before your eyes, kind of stuff that we looked at. So they're in desperate situations. But God's saying, you're, you're monsters, you're animals. 
we might as well never have had a relationship because you're feeding off each other. What is it about humanity that when there's first a crisis like 9-11, did the best of us come out or the worst come out? It was the best. It was incredible. We were united. Uh, everybody had flags. We came back to church. But then there's also sort of the crises that go too long, like COVID. Has that brought the best or worst of us? Yeah. We, we just we devolve into you know hoarding toilet paper animals that tell that person what to do. Or, I mean, it's, it, Israel has, has done this on a, on a massive scale. And God says, no. No. This, I think, is one of the most powerful verses in all of Ezekiel. They never even think of me or my commands, says the sovereign Lord. So, through the vast majority of Americans today, did we, for one second today, ever give a thought to God? or his commands. What percentage of our body did that? Now please understand, this is really, really hard. And the solution is we really can't do this. God has to do it for us, which is why we're gonna get Jesus in a second. But he wants to continue to ask the question of you hearers, both within Ezekiel's refugees and within us today, is there one of you that will do different? Because what happens when Christians get into societies like this? When the herd is going in one direction, what do we want to do? Go the same way. He is looking, like that conversation with Abraham, for those that will say, not me. What's the, the hymn, though all the world go, uh, what is that, with all the world go with thee? Um, I don't know hymns that well. Yes. What is that? Yeah, it's where we really do separate out the the true believers from those that culturally have gotten into it. Verse 13. Hold on. Okay, sorry. No, that's okay. So just uh, I want to encourage you to underline that that the back end of verse 12 there and just for to ponder for a second. Like let's bring this back into to some some of your real living and being in the world. What are some of the things that happen throughout your days that cause you to forget the Lord? That cause you to forget who you are? Cause you to forget... Are we going in and out there, Nate? Uh, That cause you to uh, forget your partnership with God. And tempt you to live life on your own terms. It's interesting, since chapter 20, it's... uh, it's just become very repetitive. I would like for somebody to actually read back through those, uh, those chapters, beginning in chapter 20, and how often the Sabbath has been mentioned. If, you know, just like Kurt's already alluded to, we, 
in general, most people don't even give it a second thought. We are formed, especially in places like Midland, that we go and we put the pedal to the metal and we just keep driving and keep driving and keep driving. I just want you to hear me loud and clear that if you do not stop in the midst of the chaos that we regularly have to deal with, you will forget the Lord. And it will cost you your soul. Nobody dictates your schedule but you. You may say, no, no, I don't have a choice. Yes, you have a choice. And you have a choice to so fill, fill your life with whatever it is that you think gives you life that you will end up forgetting the Lord and losing your soul. Because the stuff that we are regularly up against, it's too hard. We will get duped too quickly unless we stop and give us time for our soul to give us perspective. We will lose it. Israel did not get into this place overnight. Pastor Kurt, right? Yep. But it was... Decades and centuries of making choices to accommodate to the cultures around them instead of shining the light and being that transformative uh, voice to the Canaanites. That's what they were called to do, but they accommodated. And so when we choose to say, nope, I'm going to stop, I'm going to rest. And actually honor God with our calendars, that starts speaking to those other voices that are trying to drive us into the ground. What does it take and how long does it take for you to forget the Lord? And how do we arrange our life in such a way that when we're starting to forget, that we give us space to remember? Is God going to send you to hell because you didn't take the Sabbath off? No, he's not. But did God teach us to rest for us totally to forget it? I mean, again, we Christians are in a unique situation because we're not the Jews, but we're adopted into this family. We're not expected to do all the things that they did. They're, They're different. But that doesn't mean we can't learn a lot from what God taught them. And a lot of times we, we want to act, well, the New Testament is just what we have to do. We, we don't have to keep the Sabbath. We can do whatever we want. Yes, yes, you can. But ask the question, is it a good idea to listen to what God taught them? He didn't just give them rules to be mean. It's, we're, we're having discussions with my son about what life in college is going to be like. And one of the things we do in our house, Rich, I'm sure you do too, every night we make sure all the dishes are clean and the kitchen is clean before we go to bed. And Jason keeps telling me, well, when I go to college, I don't have to do that. And I'm like, yeah, you you need to learn some version of this. Again, I will not be there to force you to clean your kitchen. 
But when you wake up in the morning and there's something crawling around in your kitchen, you're probably going to remember this. So much of what they're going through has that kind of lesson for us. God says, it was, look, you don't have to do this. I know, I'm not going to send you to help, but it's a good idea. So stop every six days on the seventh day and figure out what you're doing. We shouldn't live 50 years, have a midlife crisis, and then move on. You should have a midlife crisis once a week and, and figure it out. Uh, but we, we know better. And what, it, what, one of the classic statements about Sabbath keeping is, if you don't take the Sabbath, the Sabbath will take you. Yep. Do you get it? That you will be forced to rest. Like your body, will, your body and your soul will break and you will be forced to rest, right? It's like one of the things I'm dealing with with this stupid foot. It's like, good grief. Is God trying, you know, endure hardship as discipline. Kurt and I preach that regularly. But then when you have hardship, you've got to stop and say, okay, God. I don't think God caused my foot to hurt. But God, what are you trying to teach me about my pace of life? And about how I'm treating my body. What are you trying to teach me? Slow down. And learn. Verse 13. Interesting cultural element here. God's saying, now I will clap my hands at indignation. In Western cultures, in English, we clap because we're proud. We're showing honor. Maybe something's funny. We get excited. Hebrews only clap in disgust. So sort of picture totally the opposite. If God is clapping, he's not happy. Um, what you were talking about is saying it was a good example. What, what do you do when your kids are... Stop it, stop, stop. <laughs> that, that's kind of what God is, is, is saying. When he claps, it's, it's like pulling your hair in, in English. It's, it, it's, it's never, never good. There's much clapping like that in my house, Kurt. <laughs> Much. <laughs> and I, I have studied this time period more than any other in, in biblical uh, studies. I, in, in terms of my work as a grad student, this is the time period that I studied uh, the, the wars between Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. And, and I honestly, I would be terrified to try to live through this. It, it made World War II look like a cakewalk. This was such a horrible time in human history. People had never seen a world war like this. And it, it went on for almost 270 years. Uh, and nations, people disappearing from the face of the earth. It was just, it was horrendous. And I don't know how I could have saved you know, you imagine sometimes as a kid getting the time machine and you could go back to talk to somebody. And I don't know how, how we could have changed any of this. But then I look at our country, I look at Western civilization, how far that we've drifted from God, and I feel that same kind of hopelessness, that same question that God's asking over and over again. Is there anybody, anybody that notices what I do? Is anybody capable of being the righteous to, to stand up. <clears throat> We're going to run out of time, so let me, if that's okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Um, let me jump to the very end, and then we'll come back. Verse 30. 
God very much agrees with what we're asking. He asks, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found, what does it say? No one. One. No one. The story just started, I think, talking about us. That righteous remnant, God is not eager to destroy. He's not eager to discuss this, to see this. He will do anything to save the body. In fact, there is a large segment of this population that he is in the process of saving. It's the remnant. It's who he's writing to uh, in the refugee camps in uh, Babylon right now because this is the part that can have their hearts changed. So he's showing them, look, this arm that's still left back in Jerusalem is so rotten. There's nothing I can do uh, but remove it. Uh, learn, learn from this. But back to verse 17. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man. The people of Israel are a worthless slag that remains after silver is smelted. They are the dross that is left over, a useless mixture of copper, tin, iron, and lead. So give them this message from the sovereign Lord. Because you are all worthless slag, I will bring you to my crucible in Jerusalem. I will melt you down in the heat of my fury. Just as copper, tin, iron, lead are melted down in a furnace, I will gather you together and blow the fire of my anger upon you, and you will melt like silver in fierce heat. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. So, switching metaphors here, but you, you're worthless. You're less than worthless. You're dangerous. So all I can do is try to reforge you to take what would otherwise be thrown out. Because do you really reforge slag? Not unless you're desperate, uh, which in a sense maybe God is, but he's trying to get the base components back out of it so he can recreate again. And that's what he's good at. Uh, we'll see resurrection be kind of part and parcel of what he does with Jesus. He's going to bring back Israel from the brink of destruction uh, several times, but here is the big uh, second time. And he continues with this, and I, I, I question whether he's right. Um, then you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury. Do we today know of God's relationship with the Jewish people? <laughs> is, is that a mystery? No, I don't think it is. Um, in, a, in a kind of strange way, I think it proves God's presence in our world. Um, there's not many other people from this ancient time that still exist. Certainly none have come back uh, from the brink of destruction. Have the Jews had a lot against them over their history? Quite a bit. Uh, there's not been, I think, a major empire, at least in the West, that hasn't taken a swing at them. And uh, they're still there. You know, today there's only 12 million of them left. About half in the U.S., half in Israel, 
a few spread out in France and Canada, but mainly United States and Israel. How much of world peace is still surrounding them today? 12 million. How many Texans are there? Are we about 30 now? All the Californians moving in. So let, let's say maybe 25 million real Texans and maybe 5 million. No, no. But, uh, you know, half the population of Texas, and uh, here they are. I don't think it's just them. I think it's God still working his plan. He certainly has a larger plan for the church and the Gentiles, uh, but he never stopped loving his first, firstborn. So 23... Again, the message came to me from the Lord, Son of Man, give this message to Israel. In the day of my indignation, you will be like an uncleared wilderness or a desert without rain. Think back to the original garden. What did God call us to do in the garden? What were we? Was the garden going to take care of itself? Yep. Yep. So this world, all of nature, all of what we live in, requires us to take care of it, to be involved, as we've been talking in our sermons, to serve and protect life, to bring forth life where we see it, to protect it where it's precious. So an unkept wilderness is an exact way to describe what the world turns into when we're not partners with God, when we forget to think about God. All of our animalistic sides just come out. We give in to whatever impulse or desire or urge we have. We become evil. We become that which preys upon each other. I mean, think about the, the greatest evil we face in the world is what? Each other. I mean, it's not lions and bears that are going to break into your house and probably murder you. It's other people. Uh, the coyotes didn't build nuclear bombs. Uh, you know, it's it's us. Uh, and God's saying, this is, this is why I have to intervene. This is why I try to give you laws and instruction and teaching and example. Now, we see it hasn't worked. He's going to come another way and teach in the form of Jesus. But up to this point, it's, it's been a disaster. It is a desert without rain. We know what that's like in West Texas, don't we? There's nothing good that's going to happen unless we get rain. There's nothing good in our world that's going to happen unless we have the presence of God that we accept, experience, share. Your princes plot conspiracies just as lions stalk their prey. They devour innocent people, seizing treasure and extorting wealth. They increase the number of widows in the land. This is exactly that riddle that we talked about. Remember the sons of Josiah, the last great righteous king? They were supposed to be great guys. Their dad was incredible, and they were terrible. They were the young lions that were raised that prey on their own people. So they are so desperate for allies, so desperate to bribe the Egyptians to help them, that they're extorting money from their own people. They're, again, desperation. They're declaring martial law, taking the money of their own to give away to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are never coming. They're not going to risk their mercenary armies to save Judah. Judah is cannon fodder for them. But it's not just the kings. 
Your priests have violated my law and defiled my holy things. To them there is no difference between what is holy and what is not. They do not teach my people the difference between what is ceremonial and clean and clean. They disregard my Sabbath so that my holy name is greatly dishonored among them. Your leaders are like wolves who tear apart their victims. They actually destroy people's lives for profits. So I've been pointing a lot of fingers tonight, but wow, is this convicting as clergy, as a pastor. How are our religious leaders doing in our country? I mean, Steve and I, I joke about it, but it's, it's a real pain. It really is. Nearly every hero I had growing up in my 20s in the ministry has failed me, has had a moral failure, has done something unspeakable, has been defrocked. I mean, people whose books I read religiously, it, it's disgusting. Do clergy generally teach what's right and wrong nowadays? Not really. Those that God left to instruct are like wolves, uh, interested in profit. I don't want to be all gloom and doom. Um, there are certainly pockets where we're trying, and God bless this church. I mean, that's what keeps me here from going on to um, just having another church bigger of my own um, because I believe in the people here in Midland. I believe in you all. I believe that when God answers that question, will righteous people stand up? It's liable to happen in Midland because we're just dumb enough and we're just faithful enough to say, you bet, God, Absolutely, I'll do it. Just yeah. where, where do you want me? Um, I wouldn't call us dumb. <laughs> I know, I know, but <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> maybe stubborn. Stubborn. How's stubborn, that? But yeah, <laughs> we're not wise in the way of the world. Um, we we better put a stop to it. Is there something else you want to cover? I just wanted to cut kind of that the uh, in verse thirty. Whenever it's like God's, it's it's really this like desperate plea. He just laid laid it all out here in this chapter. Is there anyone who can stand in the gap? And hopefully, Kurt and I can continue to do a good job of bridging the gap between this Bible study and what we're doing on Sunday morning, and we're talking about about being priests and. Raise your right hand. I'm a priest, right? You're a priest. Um, that's not us. But God's vision for his people is that all of us will be priests. And what priests do is they stand in the gap between God and the people. We stand in the gap. And uh, there's this call of desperation on God. Is there anyone to stand in the gap? This is Abraham standing in the gap. For his nephew. This is Moses. Remember when he's up on the mountain, he's getting the terms of the covenant. The eyes are growing large with wonder. This is going to be great. And what are the Israelites doing down at the base of the mountain? Golden calf. And God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to build my nation through you. And Moses says, no, you blot me out of the book. Moses stands in the gap, right? 
And we think, yeah, Moses is going to be the snake crusher. He's going to do it. And then times get tough. And what does Moses do? He fails the test. And we got to start looking for another snake crusher. And then we get to here, and God can't see. And we have the hindsight of history, right? And the hindsight of following Jesus, that Jesus becomes the one who passes the test. And he is the one that stands in the gap for us. And when he stands in the gap for us, it all rubs off. It's supposed to all rub off on us, right? And that we are to be the ones that then go and stand in the gap. We, our, our temptation is to be finger pointers. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's got to come there. And our calling is to join God in being the priests for people and stand in the gap, protect and serve. That's our calling. So because we can turn over a few, a few books and get to the New Testament, it's like we can jump in and say, okay, God has done, us, done this for us in Jesus. Now we go and do it for the world for the sake of the kingdom. What are your questions? Come on, Nate. Just a comment. Uh, God said about the seventh day that uh, it's a sign between me and you. Mm -hmm. He didn't give very many signs. Evidently, that was important to God. We still see the bow in the sky as one of those signs. That's right. right. And uh, it's so amazing. Heard, I really agree with exactly what you said. It doesn't send us to hell if we don't observe the Sabbath. But Deuteronomy 28 always comes back to me in the fact that if you keep these commands, there will be blessings. If you don't, there will be curses. Yeah. So I'm sort of struck with the, the, the sense tonight, I don't want to leave you with, if you have a bad day or you make mistakes or you sin, you know, you're, you're hopeless and God's going to come destroy you. That's, that's not what we're talking about. This is the way a culture had developed. Yeah. This is the mass movement of people. And as much as we don't think about it sometimes, we can still change our culture. Correct. God changed the world with 11 disciples. He, he did it. I mean, he's not kidding. If I can just get a few of you to, to live like you were supposed to, I can do amazing things. It's like the fishes and loaves, right? Give me what you got, and then we can go to town. But there has to be some force in a culture that's fighting against that human nature. And I hope you see parallels in this because what the Jews fell into is what the Romans were doing and what the Greeks were doing and then later what Europeans are doing and then later what we do and then what the Chinese are getting into. This is a battle of human nature unchecked um, as opposed to the love that's taught to us that we can embody. We can be the most beautiful, incredible things ever or the worst. You better pray us out, Pastor All right, Kurt. Let's pray. Father God, we say tonight, we're, we're willing. We are. We don't know exactly what we're really volunteering for, 
but we know you and we struggle to know your word. We know the way that you set before us is the way that we want to take and that we don't want this experiment that began in the garden to fail. We don't want Christ's death on the cross to never be claimed. So tonight, as children of Christ, as your children, we say we want to do, Father, what, what you teach us to do. We want to be people of love, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. We want to be the righteous remnant that can stand in society and say, love is all important, but let's remember the one who taught us love. Because without you, Father, we know there is no true love. So we pray for our country as we continue to pray for the world around us. We have wandered and wandered and wandered and grown tired of our wandering and then wandered some more. And we look at the world that we create in our wandering and it, it breaks our hearts. It's not a world that even we want to live in. 